0: so my guest today for the coppuccino podcast is dr helen murray phd she's a neuroscientist by day her research examines anatomical changes in neurodegenerative diseases using post-mortem human brain tissue, and is part of a research team studying CTE, which is neurodegenerative conditions associated with repetitive head injury in sport. But if that wasn't enough, she's also the captain of the New Zealand women's ice hockey team, the Ice Ferns. She's been playing in that team since 2013. And she's a member of the National Women's Inline Hockey Team, which she's also been the captain of. She's also been a flag bearer for the New Zealand World Roller Games. So my great pleasure to introduce... And welcome, Dr. Helen Murray, PhD, to the Cappuccino Podcast.
1: It's that time again, so grab
0: yourself a cup of Joe
1: and get ready for the cappuccino with Constable Brian.
0: Okay, so my very special guest today is Dr. Helen Murray, PhD, who also just happens to be an ice hockey player, but we'll talk about that in in, uh, a little bit. So Helen, I always start off with a speed round dedicated to speed, which I think is the world's greatest police movie because it's got Keanu Reeves in it. Uh, He's a villain Ted, he's John Wick, uh, he's Neo. You just can't get me better than that. So I'm going to give you six questions because that's the number that you wear when you play for the ice Iceman, I believe. So here, here we go. So... Your favourite hockey player is who?
1: Oh, that's so hard. Um, if I have to pick NHL, I've
0: There we go. Nothing wrong with that. The NHL team I support is?
1: Oh, I lived in DC, so it's the Caps.
0: <laughs> the last book that you read was what?
1: Um, I actually just read a book by a New Zealand author about
0: um, Parkinson's disease. Oh, there you go. Okay, one talent that you have obviously apart from hockey that you can't use at work that if you if you walked into your research lab and you went hey guys and pulled out like a ukulele you could play it and everybody'd go holy heck hellum what's going on there have you got any of those skills
1: (laughs) um oh my gosh nothing obvious is coming to mind i'm stupidly good at puzzles that's what i've been doing during lockdown i do puzzles on like one night
0: (laughs) jeepers okay all right no worries okay if the Ice Ferns uh, or your uh, Ice Hockey League team had walkout songs for each individual player, what would be <laughs> Helen Murray's walkout song when she came oh, out?
1: Oh, my gosh. I, oh, my gosh. I have absolutely no idea.
0: Uh, I'll come back to you on that one. <laughs> absolutely gonna, stumped. to I actually thought she blinded me with science by Thomas Dolby, but there you go. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. The best hockey movie of all time is what?
1: Ooh, miracle.
0: There you go. Yep. Okay. All right. So there's your speed round. Uh, Like I've said to you before, normally we record this in the police car. So I owe you a coffee in the police car, but what type of coffee does Dr. Helen Murray have if she's having a coffee?
1: Flat white
0: every time. There you go. Awesome. All right. Um, COVID, how have you been doing coping with it all? Because obviously there's no hockey at the moment. Uh, Most of the seasons have been not, I'm not going to say canceled because I wouldn't do that to the local fans, uh, but let's just say they're postponed pending sort of further developments, and obviously your work—you can't go into the lab and do all your work. So, how have you been handling things?
1: Yeah, I mean, all my favourite things are kind of on pause at the moment: yeah. science and hockey. Um, this particular lockdown's been particular. I think it's been quite tough just because um, it, it just sort of came out of the blue. And we were sort of in the middle of of our our ice season, the National League season. We were preparing for inline nationals, which was sort of one of the big calendar events for inline hockey. So I had a lot of things to look forward to. And I've just started this um, exciting new research project and sort of getting into that. And then all of a sudden, it's just kind of all on hold. So um, I'm definitely busy. There's plenty. I have plenty of work to do. I have a lot of data to get through while I'm working from home. But I think being in the lab and, and working with my team is probably one of the best parts of my job. So yeah. I'm really yeah. missing it. I think it's been, this one's definitely been harder.
0: How have you found, because obviously you would go to the gym, you go to the rink, uh, you've got to training sessions and everything else. How have you found that loss of contact and um, keeping up the physical fitness? Cause look, let's be honest. If uh, women's ice hockey league turns around and says, you know what? In three weeks time, we're good to go, Helen. Uh, it's too late to start your fitness then. So what have you been doing to keep yourself fit?
1: Yeah, that's one of the big challenges, especially because with the rest of the country and alert level two, they've kind of got more access to be able to train. And so we're quite, you know, we're really aware that we really need to stay fit right now. I'm kind of intrinsically motivated with fitness. I, I just feel better when I exercise. So it's kind of part of my just daily routine mental health, keep myself sane. Um, the thing that I prefer to do is lift. I, I like being in the gym Um I like working on strength sort of stuff and cardio is like I forced myself to do it but I guess I live in an apartment I don't really have a lot of stuff to work with and so I've just found myself having to run um because that's basically all I can do and it's definitely not my favorite activity but I think the challenge and just trying to force myself to do it more than I ever have before has been has been quite good but I am absolutely
0: just dying to get back into the gym. Yeah, look out. Now, for those of you, for those of our listeners who haven't played ice hockey before, I still have lots of my friends. I mean, I've never played, but I love watching the game, super fan. Um, But I don't think most New Zealanders actually have an idea of how aerobically challenging it is to ice skate out on a rink. And in particular, I've got friends of mine who I used to play rugby with go, oh, but they come off after sort of two or three minutes on the ice and then they have a bit of a break. Could you compare being out on the ice and running your line? Uh, what would you, what exercise would you compare it to if you're going to compare it to something?
1: It's like shuttle runs. It's yeah. like doing full out shuttle sprints. I think you, you're you on the rink for about a minute, but that minute is absolute. You just have to give everything you've got. It's basically a sprint <laughs> the yeah. whole time yeah. Yeah. and you've got to stop start. So it's not just a straight line sprint. Not only do you need to be aerobically fit, but your VO2 max has got to be really high. You've got to be... Um, able to push yourself and then recover really quickly yeah so I would I mean I think we're weird hybrids in terms of athletes we have to be um, we have to have sort of what do you call it long-term aerobic fitness so we need to be endurance athletes but you also have to be powerful and a sprinter and you have to be strong you've got to have balance you've got to be technically good and have you know game awareness so there's just so many different facets of the game
0: yeah, and for those New Zealanders who are listening and going, eh, I'm not too sure. Go onto YouTube, type in Connor McDavid fitness test, and get ready to be blown yeah. away because the man is superhuman. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, how did you get into inline skating and then ice hockey? Because it was inline skating first that you got into, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I started off with um, inline inline hockey. My my brother actually came home with a pamphlet from school when he was really really young. I think maybe like five or six. Um, I was ten at the time. And maybe a little bit younger than that. And we went along to sort of a give it a go kind of thing. And my brother was doing it. And I was sort of backseat coaching him on the way home. And sort of being like, you should have done this. You should have done this. And my dad said to me, why don't you go do it then? And I'm like, okay. And so I did. And I just, I don't know, I just loved it. It took a while. I think there were a couple of years of not being, you know, good at skating or good at puck handling or anything. But yeah, I just love the team aspect of it, I think. And then as I um, as I got older, I set my sights a little bit higher. I wanted to try and get into representative teams. I made the New Zealand junior women's inline team when I was fourteen, and then I think that was kind of really the limit for where women could go. You know, we didn't have a world championship at that point, point. Um, and so I looked to ice hockey because some of the other girls had moved across to ice hockey for more more of a challenge, more competition. And yeah, and that's so I started ice hockey when I was about eighteen, and then um, I made fast forward. I just had my thirty-first birthday, so
0: yeah. it's been a while. Still a spring chicken. Still a spring yeah, chicken. No, yeah, no, I'm still, I'm
1: still loving it, and still fit yeah. enough to do it. So
0: that's the way. Good stuff. Um, whenever you do a media appearance in your white coat, so to speak, and I've seen you do several <laughs> on YouTube, um, do you eye roll when people go, "Oh, and it's Doctor Helen Murray, and she's also an ice hockey player"? Because I suspect what they think is that they're going to get some goon who plays ice hockey who can come out and say some very intelligent words and then go back into sort of goon mode and play ice hockey. And as you and I both know, to be fair, that's not how most ice hockey players roll, but do you get a little bit tired of it sometimes? Because I do think sometimes when I see you on television or uh, being interviewed on YouTube, it's just like, oh, and she's an ice hockey player as well. Do you get a bit tired of it?
1: I think, um, I don't know. There's a bit of novelty still, I think. I think people, I kind of get a kick out of people being so surprised by it. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you say, there's this kind of stigma around those two things don't really go together. But um, there are plenty of very intelligent hockey players. The hockey community is just full of people who do all sorts of different jobs and all sorts of affairs. Joel's a scientist. He's out there doing science communication as well. So, you know, we're we're a novelty in some aspects, but not not that many. Um, I think the thing that gets most people is that it's not just the science. It's also being a woman in a contact sport. So yeah, it's all kind of all three of those things. I think there's a bit of novelty there, but it's one of those um, one of those sort of unique features that I think kind of gives sets me apart a little bit from colleagues in both both areas. And so mm-hmm. I, I sort of I cling to it. There are two things I'm passionate about, so I'm happy to be sort yeah. of defined
0: by them, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, you play forward, uh, and I'm I'm going to say Jess because. You know, I, I'm a big goalie supporter. Obviously, not good enough to not good enough to play in goals with the pads on. Uh, no, no, not ballsy enough. And it's also probably the size thing as well, because you're only five foot four, aren't you? yeah i'm sure yeah. Yeah,
1: hello. <laughs> um, i, I yeah, honestly personally i don't i don't think size is a good enough excuse because plenty of the girls on my team are the same height as me um one of my teammates rachel Neville Lamb, we are exactly the same height exactly the same weight and she is an absolute boss of a defenseman so right. i i play forward i think because i just i like the aggression and i like being up there scoring goals and i the yeah. pressure of defending is a lot but um I think I I took to being an offensive player when I was very young and just uh, really specialised a bit too early, and now I just feel like I can't go back.
0: (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Um, And as Barry McGuigan used to say, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. So you're not wrong. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, okay. All right. How the hell do you juggle being a neuroscientist and playing in two sports teams at the same time? What's your daily routine Um... look like? It must be horrendous. Yeah
1: very good time management I think is probably the number one um yeah I I, you know it's funny a lot of people said to me especially in sort of the science world it's really competitive to be a researcher to stay in research and a lot of people said to me there's no way that you can keep um playing international level sport and staying fit enough for that and succeed in a science career and I think I've just been a bit bullheaded about sort of just disagreeing with that I think I've just kind of pushed it at the whole time. I've been really fortunate to have an amazing um, boss who has supported me as an athlete throughout my whole PhD and then subsequently. And it's kind of turned into now, you know, that's this is the thing that's been driving, this is driving my career now is the fact that I am an athlete and I have a unique perspective ahead head injury. So it's it's been the best thing for it. Um, but in terms of like logistically how I manage it, yeah, it's just... It's being disciplined about training. It's being disciplined about um, work and being efficient at work. I try not to sort of waste time doing anything that isn't going to um, sort of turn into productive work. And yeah, just make sure that I'm, I, I live by a calendar. If it's not on my calendar, it's not going to happen. Nice, including
0: training. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um And I'm not suggesting that you will, because I know that you get upset because everybody says, when are you going to retire? And I'm, You say as long as you want. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, The question I'm going to ask you though is, what are you going to do in your free time when it's all sort of finished, or you haven't even thought that far ahead?
1: I'm. I try not to think that far ahead, but I think COVID and this whole sort of lockdown situation has given me an insight to what life after hockey might look like. I I'm, 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 I still feel like I'm fit and performing so I don't have any sort of intention to retire and I definitely don't want the pandemic to be the reason that I retire no. but I th- I think my 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 perspective is I'd like to spend a bit more time with with friends I think a lot of my sort of friend and family relationships tend to get pushed a bit for all of the other commitments and it's been really nice to be able to do that over this time and and one day in the future I hope to have a family so you know I'm hoping that one day I'll swap Sort of the intense international hockey for having a family that's sort of my intent
0: now given your analytical mind and your sort of delving into research and everything else is there a, a coaching career on the horizon there or not do you think would you like to have a dabble at it
1: i think i would i think um i think so i have dabbled in the past in sort of uh club level teams and trying to develop the journey women, especially i i haven't felt like i could dedicate enough time to do it properly right now and so that's the main reason that I haven't been heavily involved in coaching because if I when I do something I want to do it to the best of what I can offer and I I just haven't felt like I could do that right now in the future if I think if I'm not training as much um for my own personal hockey I think it's definitely something I want to be involved in I'd love to to coach at high levels as well so that's one of my long long long-term plans but um yeah I think I think you need to Good mentorship to be a coach as well. I think being coached as a player is different to being coached to coach. Yeah. And so, yeah, that would probably be, I'd like to sort of do that first before I jumped into a, a it.
0: Now studying for your PhD and playing hockey is a mammoth task, which is what you did. Um, did you, obviously you've, like you said, your time management is out of this world. I know if it was me, I'd be like, I'm at the rink. I'm at, not at university. Hang on. Things are going <laughs> wrong for me. Um, do you just lock yourself away uh, and get it done, hit the ice and then go back to the study? What does a normal day look like for you? So mm-hmm. you're obviously, you're going to the gym early to start off with in the morning, I'm guessing?
1: Um, it's, it's kind of changed over the years, I think. When I when I first started my PhD, so that was uh, when I started with the ice burns. really 2013 was my first year of my PhD. I was doing a lot of early morning uh, trainings. So I would I would go to the gym very early in the morning, sort of five thirty six, and then I would be at work or I'd be sort of in the lab around six thirty seven, and that was mostly actually because I um you can't get parking around <laughs> grafting campus which is where I worked but you yeah. can if you get there super super early and so most of that was actually just sort of around that kind of stupid practicality um yeah I'd do a pretty much a a long day in the lab. I'd usually be in the lab from sort of six thirty seven until six at night and then go straight to training and then home and try and find some food and 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 sleep. i'm I'm very uh, intense about sleep. I think I, I function best on eight hours of sleep and so I try to prioritize that. Yeah. doesn't leave a lot of time for anything else, unfortunately, but um, nowadays though, I think I'm a bit more balanced. So uh, I have a car park at uni, which is the biggest change. and so I actually I sleep in a bit more, I go to work. A bit later and i train after work and usually go straight from gym work into into hockey if we have hockey that evening so and then i kind of try and come home and i separate the two you know if, you know when i'm home i like to be home i don't like to be working i don't like to be training so nice. if i can it's my that's my plan
0: now question for you have you ever been concussed playing either or of the codes uh
1: so if you had asked me this a couple of years ago i would have said no yeah um, because i i didn't I, I haven't had a head impact which has caused me symptoms that have led me to go to a doctor um knowing what i know now having started sort of doing this research on head injury i would say definitely about two or three times i've come off after a weekend of playing hockey where i had had a big head impact one of them actually broke my helmet so that should have been a big enough
0: yeah kind of clue
1: and i wasn't i wasn't right that week i was tired i was fatigued i had on and off headaches um and looking back on it i think that was definitely a concussion it just didn't register high enough on my kind of radar to go to the doctor yeah thankfully it was at the end of the season i didn't play anymore after that so i avoided sort of something going wrong again on the ice but yes i to short answer yes about two or three i think
0: okay now we'll skip a couple of questions ahead because you kind of we've got there um When I played sports, it was two or three weeks stand down once you got knocked or you took a head knock or uh, as Muhammad Ali famously calls it, the room of half dreams. uh, If you were concussed and if you were concussed three times, that was pretty much you were done with contact sport. If your parents or your GP had any common sense, they'd sort of say, actually, I think you maybe want to go and have a look at something else that you're doing. Is that still good advice or not?
1: I don't think you can put kind of a hard and fast number like that on it. I think um, everyone, at least from my understanding, from, from the people I've talked to, to the the players I interact with, people have different reactions to head impact depending on how severe it is, you know, their own personal brain chemistry, their own personal sort of um, yeah factors and, and whether they've had any before and how close, you know, two concussions are. So I really don't think that there's a hard and fast rule. If you've had three, you can't play. I think it's more like, you know, all of the factors around that are important. So I guess the message I really want to put out to, to, to any athlete really that has had a head impact is, you know, people say six weeks, you should be fine. I think it's more important to wait until you feel right. And that might be four weeks. That might be two months and might you know like that could be different for every person but the the key thing is think about this from a long-term perspective what it's going to mean for your brain health and if if you go back too early you're jeopardizing so much more than just your athlete athletic career so yeah i think everyone needs to look at it individually
0: yeah all right so we'll come back into my hockey questions now who do you look for for inspiration and i'm not just talking uh, on the hockey rink. I'm talking in general. Who's who? If I said to you, Helen, who's the person that you look to for inspiration, either athletically or professionally, what would you say?
1: Well, there's, there are actually so many. There are so many people. Um, oh, just to put a couple of sort of names out there, from a hockey perspective, I really looked up, I, I still do really look up to our um, Ice Fans Coach Rachel Park. She's an incredible human. She's an amazing hockey player. She's been a fantastic coach. Um, she's just like an absolute boss in her professional life. Um, she's someone who I I've always looked up to. I've always looked up to my past captains of the ice ferns because, um, I appreciate how hard this job yeah. is yeah. And, and what they've brought to our team and everyone brings something different. Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of mentors around the science community, um, both in Auckland, Uh, one in Dunedin, um, two who are sort of women in science, and I think they're just incredible role models. Um, Emma Scotter and Sue McGlashen are sort of the two people who I have looked to for advice in my (laughs) science career. And, yeah, I actually, it sounds sort of cliche, but I find my whole, my team really inspiring. I just think that they all have such different circumstances and everyone comes together and it's just works their ass off to, for the same vision and I find that really inspiring so yeah
0: not wrong now as an old sports captain to another sports captain you and I both know that when you are playing you're playing when you're a captain and you're playing it's a completely different role that's Uh, so true yeah what's the biggest lesson you've learned being the ice ferns captain
1: um I've thought about this a lot, actually. I think the thing that I really had to come to terms with is that it is okay to be an introverted leader. So I'm by nature very introverted. My sort of that's that is me as a person. I'm not yeah. a big "hoorah" speech kind of person. And um, yeah, I think I decided very early on that it was important for me to not try to be that because I that's what I thought would be a good leader. And and I've just tried to be very sort of true to myself and let that authenticity sort of speak and lead by example and so the biggest thing I think I've learned as a captain is delegate delegate to the people in your team who have particular strengths some people are amazing at giving those big speeches and so when it comes to that I point to I point to them and I'm like you're up let's go some people are amazing at giving the we need to work harder we need to be better speech and so I'm like okay that's you you know some people are better at organizing the team and so you know you point to them and I don't think as a captain and as a leader, you have to do everything. No. I think, yeah, it's important to be yourself.
0: Not wrong. Um, what would you say for those of, those of us that don't follow women's ice hockey, and I promise I will now, I really do, uh, what's the current state of women's ice hockey in New Zealand?
1: Um, growing. It's yeah. growing. It's a very, it's a passionate bunch of players who are athletes in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um we we're a group who we love the sport we love pushing ourselves we love pushing each other um it's a it's a technical game the women's women's ice hockey it's it's less of the brute force strength um in a lot of things and it's a lot more of um sort of gameplay and strategy and reading the other team and how we play our passing game so yeah it's a fast game and women's hockey in New Zealand I think is starting to upskill in a lot of things like speed um, and puck handling ability, which is making the game technical and exciting. And
0: yeah, Excellent. it's definitely worth, worth a watch. Oh it's, yeah, it's, no, it's, definitely. Yeah, I'll be up. there. <laughs> I, I swear I'll be there, I promise. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of people don't realise that you guys pay your own way for a lot of your hockey travel. Um, and I'm just going to mention some of the countries that you've been to. Australia, Hong Kong, the United States, Canada, Europe, Iceland, Italy, Spain, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, China. Is that tough on top of all your commitments as well? To Because I know that you guys are fundraising. I heard you mm-hmm. um, with the boys from Pukia saying, you know, I've done movie nights, I've done chocolate sales, I've done just about everything. Uh, is that really tough?
1: That, I think, has been the hardest, the single hardest part of the whole thing. Um, you know, like there's a motivation to train, there's a motivation to, to work hard on the rink, but having to find the money, to fund the trips and that being the limiting factor is probably one of the things I find really hard about the sport there's so many talented players mm-hmm. who sort of who don't sign up for these international tours because they can't afford it yeah. and that's really yeah. unfortunate I think um yeah I've, I've done all the things I've done all the fundraising things I've, I've
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> hate to think that as well because you
1: want to spend your time doing doing the stuff that's going to make you a better hockey player, and you're always asking the same people for money, you're always yeah. asking the same community, and that's that's tough. But we're very lucky that we've had some really great supporters over the years,
0: yeah. And look, let's be honest, uh, I've only stepped into the New Zealand ice hockey community this year, uh, God please the Auckland Marcos, all I'm going to say, but um, it's a really cool tight-knit community that will literally do anything for one another, regardless of which team or uh, which code you're from or anything else. Which uh, It's really impressed me. I guess that's the beauty yeah. of it being a kind of small sport. Um, yeah, exactly. I think
1: we're getting up there with profile now, so I'd like to yeah. make it scientifically easier.
0: But yep, Yeah, definitely. Uh, what's been the best hockey experience of your life? Oh,
1: I mean, if, if I point to sort of a, a particular game, um my my single most favorite memory of of hockey sort of the reason you know that I wear the black jersey with so much pride um uh 2017 we were playing in Iceland and we beat Iceland on their sort of home rink I guess and it was a game where we were actually we were down by one or two goals I think and we came back and won it and it was just it was super exciting because me and my best mate Hannah, we scored a goal straight off the face-off, and that was like one of those highlight reel moments for me. <laughs> and um, I think as a team, we just really galvanised and came together and, and pulled off something that just seemed impossible, and we did it. And man, that is the best feeling winning winning a game like that in the black jersey. You just feel on top of the world. That's probably my favourite.
0: Awesome, and you can't argue with that. Right now, behind every good sports person, there's normally a raft of supporters. And in researching this podcast, yours is obviously your mum, uh, who seems to be everywhere. What does she bring to your game? Because I know she um, helps you out with the teams and everything else, but what is she – is she like your backup? Oh, my
1: mum is just – she's just believed in everything I've ever wanted to do, no matter how sort of big and crazy it seems. And, yeah, when we were little, it was the things like taking us to the rink and – you know, driving us between, you know, across Auckland to ice yeah. and hockey and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. As we got older, it was supporting, it was coming to the games and supporting. And then over time with the national team, she became our assistant manager. So she, she was traveling with us. And yeah, my mum kind of knows um, on game day, like don't talk to me <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like she's got plenty of opinion she knows a lot about the game but but you know don't don't tell me what to do on the day kind of thing and then afterwards we can kind of unpack it yeah. but I think the biggest thing is that she's just always instilled in me that if you work hard and you really want it and then you know you got to push through and, and get it because hard work is what's going to kind of pay off she sort of gave me this um, mindset and it's a it's a quote that I got i'm pretty sure i came from a hockey coach somewhere along the line that all the best things in life are on the other side of your comfort zone and yeah. and she kind of really just like it pushed me to to get out of that so yeah, not yeah I, I credit mum for everything
0: yeah she's not wrong so your dad brent murray who was a software developer led you into science and it was his tragic passing when you were 15 that led you into the field of medical research uh, because, and I quote, being around lots of doctors, I wanted to be solving the problems, which I think is really inspirational. Um, medical science, though, did you start looking at anything else? Did you want to go and become uh, a doctor of medicine or something else, or did you just go, you know what, I, this is the way I'm going to go. I'm doing medical science. Um,
1: well, when I, when I was little, when I was really little, I wanted to be a vet, um, and then we had to put the cat down, and I realized I did not want to be a vet. Um, Yeah, dad always had a love of science and he passed it on to me from an early age I think from very young I was I was like I want to do something in science and when I I guess our experience of of his cancer and and doctors and stuff it made me just it it was frustrating that you know doctors it felt to me at my sort of young age of 14 15 that doctors just didn't really know what to do and so there's no point being a doctor because I'm just going to be confronted with all these People that i can't help and so i wanted to i was like i'd rather be on the other side trying to find the answers to mm. give to the doctors to help people um and i think also kind of being a researcher uh, sort of appealed to my more introverted nature mm. um but it was actually a university I, I did a biomedical science degree so it's a broad biomedical sort of medical science the reason i chose it is because um because of dad's experience i guess i was just interested in medical science and making things better. And it was in the first year of that degree that I had a lecture by uh, now Sir Richard Fall, who is one of my bosses actually. And um, he is just the most engaging lecturer and he made something so complicated, what I thought was so complicated, the human brain seems so logical and so um, exciting and, and people kind of get put off by how, how difficult neuroscience is. And I think I was more just captured by how interesting it was. So That's what took me down the neuroscience pathway as opposed to
0: cancer biology or anything. Yeah, here we go. Here's my big spiel. I've almost learned this verbatim. So (laughs) if I get any of it wrong, just let me go on. So your research examines anatomical changes in neurodegenerative diseases using postmortem human brain tissue. And at the moment, you're involved in a research program studying CTE, which is a neurodegenerative condition associated with repetitive head injury sport. So I guess the first thing is, should anybody who has played contact sport or uh, is playing contact sport be worried about issues as they get older, uh, early onset Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, issues with concussions, migraines, etc.? Because in the media, there tends to be at the moment, there's a bit of a focus on, we've seen ex-All Blacks, for instance, uh, who have mm-hmm. had... Uh, he, uh, I'm going to say, uh, degenerative issues. Uh, I myself have got friends that I know that have got some um, issues as well with early onset Parkinson's and the such like. Is it something that we should be worried about if we have played contact sports or to be fair, is it too late?
1: Um, So I I operate off a sort of mindset of, of hope and positivity yep. so my my perspective on all of this is you know it's controversial right now there's, yeah, there's a little controversy sure. in the media about you know is this disease even real um, the what we know from a science perspective is that um the pathology in the brain that's associated with CTE is linked to repetitive head injury um, but you know we, we it's difficult to diagnose it in a living person um, mm. so I think it's it's pretty hard to to sort of, what's the word? It's pretty hard to argue with the the evidence, which is linking repeated head injury and CT pathology. I think um, there's a lot of work to do to understand that link. And so, yeah, the research is is definitely where this this whole thing needs to be going. We need to understand more. And to understand more, we need to look at populations of people across all different sports. Mm. So should people who have had play contact sports be concerned, Um, I think it's important that Everyone looks sort of at their brain health and, and monitors, you know, yeah. all these sorts of things. I think potentially playing a contact sport might, from what we understand, um lead to a higher risk of, of dementia later in life. And so I think it's important that everyone kind of looks at their brain, t- their brain health from a long-term perspective. Yeah. And if if you notice changes, then you know, go and go and talk to to a to a doctor about that. Um, but I don't think it's uh, lost hope situation not not every athlete who has played contact sport is going to get cte no You no, need no. to understand if you know if there is a link there what how does that work
0: yeah and now at the moment the only way that you can sort of spot it from what i've read is obviously you um have your samples of brain tissue you're looking at them and everything else. do you think there'll be a day where and this is way minority report stuff. Um, do you think there'd be a day where we can almost step into a scanner and we can get like a, almost like a 3D scan of our brain and what's going on in there? Do you, can you see that happening in the yeah, future?
1: That That is exactly what we want to get to. So so right now, um, you can only definitively diagnose CTE by looking at the brain after the person has passed away, which is obviously not very helpful for
0: the person. No, no,
1: um, no. It's very difficult as well to separate what what we define as CTE from other types of dementia so it's very common that people who have pathology that's related to CTE will also have some pathology that looks like alzheimer's disease or that looks like frontotemporal dementia so sometimes it's not as clear-cut as you fit into this box or that box so a lot of the work what what my project is really trying to do is understand what are the differences in the pathology how can we better assess what is CTE and what is not um, and then those differences can we apply them to something like an MRI scan and try and look for changes that are going to give us an indication of whether or not someone has it during during their life? Um, it's a difficult ask because it requires it requires two things I guess it requires number one for people to donate their brains to yeah. science after yeah. they pass away, which is a big you know a big ask mm. for people to do something which isn't going to help them but help their future generation um, it also requires us to sort of follow people over time, so we really need to sort of go on this journey with people throughout their lives and experiencing um, CTE or you know what we suspect to be CTE, and, and understand and sort of scan their brains along, and then when we can look at it at the end, see oh, okay that was this or that wasn't that, and that's a long journey to be able to get those answers, so yeah, it's not overnight,
0: no. no I think we're on the right track. Not wrong. So when most New Zealanders think of CTE, they, most of us, uh, particularly those who have got anything to do with sports, immediately think of concussion, which is the story of Dr. Bennett Amalu, um, and his sort of, I'm going to say, his, his running with Iron Mike Webster, who was an ex-NFL player, whose mental health was so bad he was ranting at strangers and zapping himself with a taser, uh, and one particular Uh, Stage Omalu dissects Webster's brain and discovers tower proteins which impair moods and cognitive function and he coins the phrase CTE and his discovery of belief is that Webster's troubles were as a result of head blows in his career. Given the fact that our pseudo-national game is non-helmeted and non-padded, should that be a cause for concern, do you think? Um, So I guess one of the
1: caveats of... of what we know about cte right now is that it is predominantly from a population of american football players mm-hmm. so the MLA study was sort of one of the first that that showed that an american football players since then and mckee's group in boston has um studied hundreds of former nfl players i think i should also mention at this point that we do have to consider that there's kind of a selection bias in the brains that we study so the people mm-hmm. who donate their brains for this research are usually concerned that they have cte wow. and that gives an inherent bias to the sample so yeah, I think, you know, we need to think about contact sport in New Zealand and whether or not this applies to us. Um, I think it's about understanding risk and relative risk. Um, it's not necessarily playing rugby equals this. It, it's, it's does having an increased sort of number of head impacts lead to pathology or, or dementia. And, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a rugby thing. That's any kind of sport, you know, plenty of sports have head impacts. Um, yeah, I think the the helmet wearing side of things gets uh, kind of misleading. So uh, helmets don't necessarily protect from concussion. A helmet will protect you from a skull fracture <laughs> yeah. um, or something like that, you know. But, but, you know, what's causing a concussion is that your brain is moving violently within your skull and a helmet isn't going to stop that from happening. So, um, you know, people sort of ask, you know, should we be wearing helmets in rugby? And I might kind of answer that as well that's not necessarily going to
0: protect no, you from no. a concussion. So, yeah. So you said in a TV interview recently that there hasn't been enough research done on either side, uh, either the academics mm-hmm. or, or the sports. Um, how long do you think it'll be roughly before we have a definitive answer on whether contact sports and CTE, uh, and the definite link, and then go from there?
1: It's it's a really hard question to answer because, I mean, in order to, to answer the question, because what we're really asking here is do people who play contact sport have a high instance of dementia?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in order to get that information, you need really, really good studies that are going to tell you they're going to follow athletes along their career mm-hmm. <laughs> and and say whether or not, you know, how many of them actually got dementia. And so that's that's a long-term study because right now you'd be pulling data from um, various places and saying, well, okay, we've got this many people who, you know, from ACC or something that have had concussions, but that's just reported concussions. This many people who have dementia, like, can you match them up? But
0: yeah, yeah. And like you I say, yourself included, you didn't really know that you had a concussion uh, and you spent a little bit of time going, oh, is it, isn't, and didn't do anything about it so it's I, I understand it's a minefield yeah and yeah
1: yeah it's it's also the fact that um you know what we define as a concussion i'm trying to kind of start i'm trying to move away from that term because i don't think it's particularly helpful because concussion is actually a set of symptoms mm. so you're asking do people have these symptoms and have they reported it mm. And really what we know is important for CTE is the number of head impacts. They don't necessarily have to have caused those symptoms. It's just how many times has your brain really had a hard impact, which could cause damage. And that might not be the type of damage which causes symptoms. So yeah, Yeah. it's um, it's more about being able to follow people over their lifetime and record their head impacts and how that relates to their likelihood of getting dementia.
0: Yeah. Now, when you look at combat sports, in particular, boxing, for instance. Uh, doctors in 1928 coined the phrase punch drunk. Um, so yeah. it's been around for almost 100 years now. Um, and you look at the dementia, pugilistic, you have uh, all the all things we know, and we've seen undeniable evidence of boxers who suffer um, degenerative diseases. Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, Parkinson's, dementia, and Alzheimer's in that order. How do you mm-hmm. how do you mitigate the risk of such sports, or can you not? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think those sorts of contact sports are difficult because in a lot of cases the intent is head impact. Yeah, um, and I, I think the key thing in in reducing the risk of those sorts of conditions arising is to reduce head impact, at least based on what we know right now, and so. I, you know, based on, on, on that, you know, safety and sport is going to have to prioritize head safety. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I don't want to necessarily speak to specific sports because I oh, I, I don't yeah. know them. I don't train them. And I don't yeah. sort of appreciate how much athletes are getting that in their regular training or not. But I think reducing head impact in training is, is one way that we can go about improving those statistics because, yeah, I mean, you don't need to be getting head knocks when you're not actually competing, right? That's,
0: no, <laughs> that's no, kind of not no, unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah,
1: but, um, yeah, unfortunately, I think, you know, from, from previous work, you know, studying these diseases, we know that there's, there's just increased risk factors. So, you know, you might start your life with risk factors that might be genetic and then environmental risk factors pile on and sort of, it's like a staircase, you know, the more risk factors that add up, the higher the likelihood of getting one of these conditions. And so, you know, more head impacts is just
0: more steps up that ladder. Yeah, not wrong. Um, <laughs> I've, read, I've read in research for the podcast a fighter saying that, and this is just a, an example, he had 106 fights, fighting for about four rounds of fight. That was about 424 rounds. And if he got a hit, hit on average seven times a round, that's about 2,968 times, give or take a couple, he's been punched in the head. If he, a ten, lot. Yeah, he, if he sparred 10 times for each fight and each session was six rounds, that's 6,360 uh, rounds and that's seven headshots around. So that makes it 44,520 blows, give or take it again. G- given the money that's involved in sport and when you've got evidence like that, it, it's kind of concrete to be fair. Um mm-hmm. Uh, do you get worried as an ec- academic, as a doctor, that um, they, they, being the sport, no matter what sport it is, will discredit uh, credible academic research into CTE? Because let's be honest, there is millions and billions of dollars involved in sport. COVID's proven that, um, how quickly we opened up mm-hmm. sports fields. Uh, was staggering to everybody, all, and even now um, at work, we I have hard nosed cops who love their sports. Turn around and I go, I can't believe they're playing this game in the middle of a pandemic. It's it's crazy. Um, are you are you worried that like, or are, is the academia worried about the fact that potentially you guys could be discredited? Like Dr. Omalu. I mean, even now when I was researching this podcast, his name's still coming up, and people are still saying, oh, all of his research is discredited. It's biased. And the NFL completely disproved it. Is that something that worries you as a professional?
1: I think there's always sort of a concern that there's going to be this clash between sort of the, the monetary gains versus the player safety. I think, in general, you know, yeah, people are going to kind of push back on evidence until it's at the point that you can't refute it. And that's our job as scientists to produce data and evidence that is of a, of a quality. Um, an unbiased way that's reproducible, so that you know we can we can stand by that that data and tell that story. So, I mean, that's the first thing. I think, generally speaking, you know, although it has been a fight, um, sporting associations recognise the importance of player safety. Generally speaking, yeah, and yeah, it might have been a battle to get there, but I think that that's becoming more of a more of a story, and it's it's going to come down to I think society as a whole being like this is you know this is about humans (laughs) and and Mm -hmm. humans having long and happy and healthy lives and and yeah at some stage I think if the evidences are refutable then you know it's it's like smoking right back in the day people were adamant that smoking didn't cause lung cancer but with enough evidence it was very clear that that was the case so I think it's kind of a similar thing here.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting debate to have because I've spoken to people about it from all sorts of walks of life. And so they're like, well, if you get the person to sign a disclaimer when they start playing the sport, um, that holds sort of them liable for their actions and what may occur. And then the flip side to that argument is, how do you get an eight-year-old to sign a disclaimer that says when yeah, I'm... Yeah, exactly. So, Yeah, exactly. It right. has to be it has
1: to be kind of built into sport culture, right? And yeah. and there's huge push at the moment. You know, I work with um uh founder of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and they're really trying to push the whole kind of speak up, team speak up sort of thing. You know, if someone yeah. of your teammates isn't right, you need to say something and there needs to be a team culture where we don't just push past mm. um that. And but you know when there's money and there's professional contracts online that gets pretty hard. So there needs yeah. to be sort of support built into sport network to make sure that people aren't
0: yeah playing with they shouldn't so your research uses, here we go, I'm going to go on another one of my spells. Your <laughs> research utilizes a novel tissue labeling technique called multiplex mm-hmm. immunohistory no, history chemistry which, which achieves labeling of up to 100 proteins on a single piece of tissue, in human-speak, can you break that down for mm, us yeah what does
1: that mean oh yeah, exactly. you've
0: some really cool research
1: um yeah so the way so when we're looking at brain tissue from a person who's passed away um the only way that we can really sort of see what's happening in the tissue or different types of components in the tissue like the different types of brain cells and the different types of blood vessels and that kind of thing is we label them with these fluorescent tags and so um traditionally we can label kind of three to four to five fluorescent tags at once and that's because our microscopes are kind of only equipped to be able to look at five different wavelengths of light at once um so I guess I mean it's kind of limiting because the brain is incredibly complex and you want to be able to look at more than sort of five things at a time to figure out what's associated with each other right so while I was working in America um 2018 to 2020 I, I worked with um, some scientists over there who are developing a way to kind of supersize that. So instead of labeling five fluorescent tags on the tissue, we were able to sort of label about 10 and then take a picture of that on the microscope and then, then strip it all off, put another 10 on, take a picture, repeat, repeat, repeat until we built up like this image library of all of these different fluorescent tags and what they were showing us um, and then kind of look at all the data all together. And so What that means is that we're able to look at all these different types of protein in the tissue and how they interact with each other all in one go. Because that would have, back in the day, that would have taken us um, like 10 different brain slices in order to be able to look at all of those things. And now we can look at it all in one. So it's more efficient use of tissue, more powerful data, um, basically just a better way of doing it. And what that means in terms of CTE research is that all the questions that we've been answering for diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's over 10, 20 years, I can answer really efficiently um, mm-hmm. by doing this, this kind of experiment. So it's hopefully going to be a way for us to explore what's actually happening in the brain of a person with CTE and how that compares to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's
0: in a really efficient way. That's fluoro that you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, that's, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I was looking at the pictures of them, I have to say they look really pretty. On, yeah, on, honestly, it's like um, my wife actually stood behind me. And went, it looks like the Coldplay concert we get to with all the fireworks and the bright <laughs> colors. And I'm like, yeah, it's- they are. They're actually, it
1: generates these beautiful, beautiful images. You know, looking at the brain is almost like looking at like galaxies in space. Or, yeah. um, I, I entered an image in an image competition once, and it, I uh, put it the alternative text that came up. Was, so, alternative text is text that comes up to um, tell someone who's blind what is in the image. Mm-hmm. The alternative text that appeared for this when I put it into a, um, a PowerPoint presentation
0: was uh, flowers in a garden. <laughs> and I
1: thought, that was such an amazing, you know, that's what uh, I thought my brain picture was. That's
0: uh, it's, really it's, cool. It's not wrong. Um, and for those of you listening to the podcast, a little bit of a, a pitch here. If you want to go and see a really quick two-minute video... Then type in breaking the wall of neuroanatomy on YouTube, which is stars Dr. Helen Murray. Um, and she very quickly explains it. You did really well. I was like, it's only two oh, minutes long. How is she going to explain yeah, this? But you so... said it was perfect. It was all good. Um, <laughs> it was a competition a while yeah, ago. It was a awesome.
1: very, very
0: cool competition. Yeah. Well, well done, you. Eventually, the end game is to understand the complexities of diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, and CTE. Do you think there's ever going to be a day, well, you must do because you're still there, where we unlock the causes and are able to cure some of these. And I'm going to say it because I've lost a relative to Alzheimer's. Goddamn mm-hmm. awful diseases because they are horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think there'll be a day Absolutely. where we actually can get to it?
1: Yeah. I. I um, so my perspective on this is that we need to prevent and intervene early. So the main problem with these diseases, and you're right, they are horrible. They're horrible diseases. I have another family member who um, had dementia and. The problem is that by the time we can detect them, by the time a person has symptoms where we recognize them um, and can get a diagnosis, the brain has already degenerated past the point that we can it can recover. And so the biggest thing that we can do is be able to detect the brain changes earlier so that hopefully we can develop treatments to intervene earlier before the brain gets to a point of no return. But also because if we can slow down these diseases, even, you know, not necessarily cure, but if we can slow them down, then people can live a longer, happier, better quality of life for, for a longer time. Mm. And it sounds kind of strange, but, you know, they'll, they'll pass away of other sort of natural causes that are uh, not as horrible as Alzheimer's. So so the the intent is really, I think, to, to slow down and prevent these diseases. Um, I think curing them at the stage that we are at right now is very, very difficult.
0: So... Here's the baited sort of fishhook question for you then. So if you were asked by a parent of a six-year-old who wanted to take up playing contact sports for the first time, what would be your advice to them?
1: So, yeah, this is, this is the question. And people have asked me this before, you know, when, yeah. I, when I let my children play ice hockey. My answer to this is that it is about understanding risk. and understanding when you have a head impact what does that mean for you long term so i'm not against contact sport obviously i play a contact sport um i think contact sport is great and and sport in general is fantastic and so i think what it's about is knowing how to play safely knowing um if something goes wrong or you know there is a head impact what do we need to do to look after ourselves long term and not have anything happening down the line. So I guess for a parent of a small child, I would say those are the things that we need, you know, parents and children need to understand to make an informed decision about whether or not it's right for them.
0: Yeah, not wrong. Now, COVID-19, you've been doing some research into this recently, along with the US-based uh, NIH, and the focus has been on exactly what, what COVID-19 does to the brain. Um, That's been a Mm. bit of of an eye-opener as far as I could tell from all the research, hasn't it, with what Mm -hmm. actually occurs with COVID-19. Do you want to just fill us in a little bit about what goes on?
1: Yeah, so that that study um, happened uh, when I came back to New Zealand because of the pandemic. I was still working with my colleagues at the NIH and they. We're working with people on the front line in New York City and also in Iowa, and um, we got some brain tissue from people who had passed away with COVID. We were looking to see two things. Number one, did the virus get into the brain? And number two, was there damage in the brain related to the virus? And we didn't find the virus in the brain. So the idea was that perhaps it could be getting up through the nose into the brain. Um, We didn't find evidence of that, but we did find evidence of blood vessel damage and massive inflammation. And so, keeping in mind that these are people who had passed away from COVID, so it was really the most severe um, consequence of, of the disease. But yeah, it was eye-opening because it, it kind of said to us that you know these are potentially long-term effects, inflammation and blood vessel damage. If you do survive, you know, um, from COVID-19, these are things that could have long-term effects on brain health, and we know that from previous research on these um, degenerative diseases. So you know, risk of things like stroke in the future and that kind of thing. So it really just highlighted that COVID-19 is not just a disease of the respiratory system. It's affecting the whole body and it can have potential long-term effects on our brain health. And so this is my plug to go get vaccinated because, yeah, it's going to reduce the chances of that happening if for any reason you did get yeah. COVID.
0: Yeah, and you're talking to somebody who has been vaccinated, yeah. so I, I fully get you. Um, Me do. <laughs> yeah, question for you though, because it's just an interesting question. If it wasn't the virus that was causing the changes in the brain um, and it was an immune response, could the vaccine cause some of those changes also or are we not quite at that stage yet?
1: Highly unlikely. I think um, the the difference in the kind of immune response you're getting from the vaccine, you know, the amount of immune responses is nowhere near what you'd be getting if, if you had full-blown COVID. Yeah. Um, so, so no, I don't think, it, I don't think that, that would be the case at all. And um, I, I don't know off the top of my head about sort of studies on this, but yeah. it definitely does not appear to be, yeah, there's no, no <laughs> no, I no mean, brain related
0: yeah. information. I mean, let, let's that be thing. honest, the amount of, uh, Vaccine that's in a vial and full-blown COVID is the difference between a syringe exactly, and a bucket, pretty yeah. much, isn't it? Yeah. In layman's terms, um, mm-hmm. olfactory bulb, part of the the brain that allows you to smell, it's affected by pollutants and viruses. Uh, but and I, I've got the term right have I mean, like olfactory. Is that what mm-hmm, you call it? Yep. Right. Olfactory yeah. Olfactory also affects uh, Alzheimer's patients with a loss of smell. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: that which is where you kind of started off your study. It's almost gone full circle. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did that strike you as I'm not going to say amusing because there's nothing amusing about Alzheimer's or COVID-19, but there's kind of a sense of irony there, isn't there, when that sort of came to light?
1: It was, I mean, yeah, I guess I never would have thought that I'd be involved in a study related to COVID-19. But um, yeah, we had been studying the olfactory bowl, which is um, responsible for your sense of smell. Uh, right at the top of your nose um, and very closely linked to the outside environment. And we were, we were studying it for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's because funnily enough, people with these diseases actually lose their sense of smell long time before the other symptoms occur. So as I was saying, we're trying to reduce, um, uh, prevent the disease or, and, and detect it early. We thought maybe this is a part of the brain that can help us detect it early because the symptom occurs so, so long before anything else. And so I had been studying that part of the brain with the intent to understand how it might contribute to the first signs of Alzheimer's disease. And yeah, when the pandemic kind of kicked off, um, I was approached by a few of my collaborators over in America and they said, oh, you know a lot about this tiny piece of the brain that no one else seems to know anything about. Can you help us sort of look at COVID-19? So yeah, I guess it's interesting how science can kind of sort of segue like that. But but that's really the beauty of working in teams and, and everyone having different expertise.
0: Yeah, it's almost sort of a scientific equivalent to getting a breakaway and going one on one with a goalie, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah,
1: um, um, people will ask me a lot about COVID 19 now. And I'm, I have to admit that I'm not 100, you know, it's not my area of expertise. I have hey, tried to learn a lot to sort of it, yeah, tell it, people it, about
0: it. It is what it is. Spanish flu pandemic, 1918. There's a surge of Parkinson's afterwards. Um, again, mm. there's uh, specific uh, olfactory bulb structures involved in odor detection um do you think it's and again obviously you're doing a little bit of research do you think it's something that might affect uh, on the tail end of covid when we and hear me god when we, yeah. we see the end of it or not
1: well that's one of the things that we were sort of interested in so so yeah there was a sort of this parkinson like um, symptoms that occurred in a lot of people post um, post the spanish flu pandemic and and we have always been interested in the fact that you know something that's occurring in the respiratory system, which is so closely linked to the brain through the olfactory bulb, you know that this could be sort of the first insult that could trigger pathology to start in the brain and then potentially spread to other parts of the brain. So um, I, I don't, I guess I, mean, I don't know. It's hard to speculate whether or not we might see an increase in these sorts of things, but I think it's something that um, the the neurodegenerative research community is, is going to watch quite closely, because, yeah, it, to segue a little bit, I mean, COVID-19 has been this um, unique, I don't want to say opportunity, it sounds weird, but it's been a, this opportunity to look at what actually happens to the olfactory system when you're affected by an, an acute respiratory infection, because normally people don't pass away from that, so you don't get to see what's actually happening. Um, so we, we don't know, you know, is this sort of information happening in the flu, and we just don't see it. Yeah, I think, I think COVID-19 has given us a new window into understanding that whole interaction between outside world, virus, brain.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, certainly uh, been a cause to reflect on many a thing, that's for sure. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it's upsetting the science world as well as the policing world, so that's a good thing. Um, yeah. All right, so three more questions for you. First thing is, brains, how do people give them to you? Mm. Because I know that, yeah, because like you said before, you know, um, there's a real, uh, and I am an advocate for organ donation, I think it's wonderful that you can save seven lives by donating just Mm -hmm. one set of organs, but it's a real taboo subject about, oh, I'd like to give these guys my brain. How how does somebody go about giving their brain to your brain research centre?
1: Yeah, no, no, thank you for asking, because it is actually not, it's not something that people um, know much about. Um, The first thing to point out is that body donation and brain donation are different things. And so um, if you approach the the medical school and say, I want to donate to science, there's two different options there. So um, you, the first point of call is to contact the human brain bank at the center for brain research. Um, And so, I mean, if you Google us, Human Brain Bank, Auckland, you'll you'll find um, the contacts there. And uh, that that's something that needs to be done ahead of time. So it's not something that you can just sort of put into your will because the brain needs to be, um, we, we need to get the brain as soon as we can after the person has passed away. So you can't really wait until the will's read and then go, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> you need to yeah. donate. Um, so we encourage people to get in touch with us and register for donation early, you know, any time in your life yeah. to say you want to donate and um, we send an information pack and questionnaires and um, have that registration process. And then also to let family and friends know that that's what you want to do because um, if family, after after the person passes away, if family don't want to donate the brain, then, then it doesn't go ahead. So yeah, um, yeah it's, it's an important thing to kind of discuss ahead of time, contact the Human Brain Bank. And yeah, I think that's probably the main the main things taken across is yeah. that's the first call.
0: and it's um it's not just CTE affected brains that and I don't mean to put this in a ghoulish manner, but it's not just CTE brains that you're actually after, is it? It's everybody's brains if if they want. That's to right.
1: Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people um, think, well, you don't want my brain because it's normal, but that's actually exactly why we do because we need to compare um, the diseases that we're studying to neurologically normal aged people in order to figure out what is normal and what is not so we are um we have research programs and accepting brain donations for people who are neurologically normal no no problems yeah. um, we have um active research in als motor neuron disease parkinson's disease alzheimer's frontotemporal dementia cte so um i guess not every brain is suitable uh, you know it's not that we can no. take every single brain We've got limited resources but that's yeah. why it's important to contact the brain bank
0: yeah yeah okay all right noted okay last question for you and it's the question that we always end the podcast on so if you haven't listened to the podcast it will come as a shock and a horror but if you have you'll go ah oh, easy <laughs> uh the day of reckoning has come for dr helen murray and your casket is lying there now we all know that there is going to be a set of skates Inline line and ice hockey skates there. There's probably going to be a set of sticks as well. So will even probably show the video footage of you, uh, despite the fact you're an old lady scoring uh, your goal in ice, Iceland, and there'll be a whole bunch of relatives sit there and go, oh, look, she was actually an athlete. She did play for New Zealand. She wasn't telling us lies. Um, what would you... Now, while you're in that casket, you can actually hear, strangely hear what people are saying about you. What would you want them to say about Dr. Helen Murray?
1: Oh, great question. Um, I would like people, I'd like people to see me as someone who is sort of trying to leave the world in a better place that I found it and leave a good impression on everyone I interact with. And that's, I think that's my main kind of goals is through science and sport. I hope that I can sort of leave people with feeling like I've been there for them.
0: But I say this because I've researched you now and I get it. Uh, you are a credit to New Zealand ice hockey um, and you're an absolute inspiration to, I'm not going to just say females, I know yeah. that there's lots of people there who will probably go, my God, she's a scientist. Angie does this and it. So congratulations to you. It's um, a life well Thank achieved, as, uh, as a mate of mine would say. Um, you're a good human. That said though, uh, when... When all that that happens and you get those final words there going on and everything else, do you think that um, you'd be satisfied? Do you think I'm done? I'm all good.
1: Um, I, I think so. I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm doing all the things in my life that I think give it meaning and yep. and I think have a positive effect on the people around me and hopefully sort of wider New Zealand society. I, I I tell people that my kind of mission is to use my experience as an athlete and my expertise as a scientist to improve brain health for for New Zealand athlete communities. I guess so. Yeah, I think I'm I, I'm I'm not done yet. But
0: no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I
1: can have a lasting contribution. In this and, and
0: she's not retired either. Just quietly, if you're listening. So no, uh, yeah. Doctor. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have you on board the Cappuccino Podcast.
1: Thanks for listening. But please, do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Cappuccino Podcast. Real people, real stories.